You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We do have our sermon notes available in our Google Drive. If you'd like to access those as well. Hebrews chapter 1. Last week we introduced our study in the book of Hebrews by kind of looking at some of a overview perspective of the book and looking at the the context and the setting of why it was written and who wrote it. And from a summary uh, perspective last week, we said our study in Hebrews is going to help us see that Jesus is superior to all things found in this life, giving us great reason to hold fast to him while encouraging others to do the same when we are tempted to abandon our faith due to persecution and or temptation from this world. Um, and so we said there's, there's kind of a theological approach to what we're going to see in the book of Hebrews and then a practical approach to what we see in the book of Hebrews. Theologically, we're going to see the author show us that Christianity is superior to Judaism and, and really all other religions, but that ultimately Christ, Christianity, uh, it's superior to Um, what some of the Jews were wrestling with, and that was staying in the Old Testament, staying in their their form of Judaism that did not see Christ as a fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament. And so theologically, we want to see that Jesus is superior uh, to things in the Old Testament. And then practically, we want that theology to guide us and to encourage us to not apostatize, to to not abandon our faith um, when we are tempted, or when we're going through trials, um, that ultimately we hold fast, we cling tightly to Jesus, and we press on towards maturity. Because we saw also last week that there's some, uh, some people in this group that receives this letter that should have been farther along in their Christianity than they were, that they should have been more mature than they were, they should have been teaching, and yet they still needed to be taught a lot of things. And so um, what we want to come out of in our study of Hebrews is uh, a better knowledge theologically of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, but also to come out very practically holding fast to Jesus in light of the fact that he is superior to things in the Old Testament. So that when we're tempted with sin or we're tempted to, to abandon our faith because of persecution, that we hold tightly to him. So from an application standpoint last week, I told you that uh, based on Hebrews chapter 1, Um, verses 1 and 2, that God is going to speak to us through this study, and we need to prepare to listen well, as Hebrews 12, 25 says that we need to prioritize um, being here, prioritize being prepared to listen well to the things that God would teach us. All right, so we get into Hebrews chapter 1, and I want to read for us the entire chapter as we will cover the entire chapter today to help set the context for the things that God would teach us this morning. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, 
Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? From a summary sentence standpoint today, Jesus is the climactic conclusion to God's progressive revelation about himself and his plan, giving us great cause to trust and follow him with our lives. So we're going to see that Jesus is the the climactic conclusion. He's not just the conclusion as though he was a tack-on to God's plan and revelation. He is the climactic conclusion, meaning all of God's previous revelation has been moving us to an understanding of Jesus. It's been preparing us to receive Jesus. So Jesus is that climactic conclusion to God's progressive revelation about himself and his plan. So throughout history, God is revealing, has been revealing to us more and more about who he is and what he is doing in our world. Jesus is the conclusion to that revelation. And as we're going to see, Jesus, as the conclusion, gives us great cause to trust and follow him with our lives. For our kids, the Old Testament is meant to prepare us for the arrival of Jesus. Now, I think we have to be real careful in, in talking in, in terms of things being better in the book of Hebrews than they were in the Old Testament, because if we're not careful, that can give us a incorrect understanding or incorrect view of the value of the Old Testament. Okay, so I want us to, I'm going to talk about this for a second, because I want us to better understand what we even mean by the term better, okay, that it doesn't render the old without value. That the Old Testament still has great value for us. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 is a great verse that reminds us of the value of the Old Testament. Romans chapter 15 verse 4. Remember, this passage is being written in the context that the church does not have the New Testament compiled yet. Okay, so when it talks about the scriptures, it's primarily talking about the Old Testament. So Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Right? So Paul is writing this, and he is certainly not writing in such a way where he would have the church to dismiss the Old Testament, to ignore the Old Testament, to not teach the Old Testament. Right? He says, the things that were written in former days... They were written for our instruction, and they were written so that we would endure, that we would have the encouragement needed to continue to hope in the things that the Old Testament has to talk about, right? So the Old Testament has great value, which means we don't need to ignore it, nor do we need to read it as though it is strictly for the Jews only, 
right? When we talk about in the New Testament, the idea of the Gentiles being grafted into God's people, I mean, that makes the Old Testament automatically relevant for us because those are our people now, right? So we are grafted into that, that people group of God spiritually. And so as we look to the Old Testament, we see ourselves there now, that there is great spiritual value for us in the promises that are given in the Old Testament. So we don't ignore it. We don't read it as though it's for the Jews only and not for the church. We also don't need to ignore the fulfillment of Christ in it. So if, if we don't understand Hebrews, we could be guilty of overvaluing the Old Testament that we, we, we lift it up in such a way that we fail to see Jesus as the fulfillment of it. So we don't ignore it, but we also don't overvalue it. There's a happy medium in between where we see the Old Testament pushing us towards a good understanding of Jesus upon his arrival. So when the, when the incarnate Christ comes, he comes as a baby, he grows up, he lives and dies and resurrects for us. The, book, the Old Testament books point us to better understanding that work of Jesus. Okay, so Old Testament has great value for us today. When we talk about Jesus being better than a lot of the things in the Old Testament, we don't want to devalue the Old Testament in any way. Jesus is better, though. He's the ultimate of what was previously presented in the Old Testament, and it was certainly an expectation by the Jews that when Jesus showed up or when the Messiah showed up, he would push them uh, he would push them to a better understanding of things that have been written. In John chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus is talking to the woman uh, at the well with um, the various husbands, and um, verse 25 says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Right? There was this expectation that when the Messiah came, there was going to be an increase in revelation. There was going to be things that were not previously known that were going to become known when the Messiah shows up. So there's this expectation that all throughout Old Testament history, God is revealing himself progressively, but when the Messiah shows up, he's going to reveal all things to us. He is going to be that climactic conclusion to God's revelation. We certainly see that uh, being presented here in the book of Hebrews as well. right? And when we think of uh, when we think of revelation, we're talking about general revelation and special revelation, right? That, that God reveals who he is, Romans chapter 1 tells us, through creation, that we can see his eternal power. We can see his divine nature, right? There's things that can be known about God, and we call it general revelation. And what we mean by general revelation is that all people for all time can see these things about God. doesn't matter where you live. doesn't matter what language you speak doesn't matter what time of, of history you live in, you can see certain things about God through his creation, right? Psalm 19 talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God. When we talk about special revelation, that's what Hebrews chapter 1 is talking about. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God speaks directly to mankind, revealing certain things about himself that otherwise couldn't be known unless he shares it directly. So special revelation is God communicating specific things about himself to specific people at specific times in history. And the author of Hebrews says that's happened long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God has been revealing himself both generally in creation and then very specially through direct revelation to people throughout history communicating to them things that they couldn't know otherwise unless God chose to communicate them, all right? So we can certainly 
be thankful that God is a speaking God. He has repeatedly taken the initiative to disclose himself because he wants to be known or worshipped. Right? So God has been very intentional to share things with mankind about himself for the purposes of man responding in worship and service to him. So God doesn't tell us everything. He tells us the things that we need to know in order to trust him, to worship him, and to serve him. God's taken the initiative to do that. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to because he desires that relationship with us. All right, so we said Jesus is better. And I think it's important that we understand that word better. It's not that he's better in the sense that he is different than the other, okay? Like, I could say that my football team that I like is better than yours, and really what's implied there is that I probably don't like your football team, that there's a, I'm better than yours to the point that, like, I devalue yours, and that's, that's not the case with what we're talking about. When we say Jesus is better than the prophets, we're not saying that the prophets were wrong. We're not saying that his message is different, Right? We're saying that it is better in the sense that it is, it is more complete than what was previously given. Right? It's better than what was previously given, but it doesn't necessarily devalue what was previously given. Because right? they're, they're, they're very much consistent. Right? He's better than angels because he's a better messenger. But that doesn't mean that the angels brought bad messages previously right? It just means that Jesus is, is better. It's better. It's more, it's, it's more sufficient. It's, 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 it's a better fulfillment. It's a greater sense. It's superior to the previous things, but it doesn't, it doesn't make those things bad or worse. He's the better prophet. He's the better son that we're going to see in this chapter. He's the better messenger with the better message and a better name. So all these things are kind of highlighted in this chapter. He's a better prophet. He's a better son. He's a better son because he is the exact imprint of his father, right? Those of us that have sons, our sons may somewhat look like us. They may somewhat act like us, but they're not the exact replica, replication of us, right? Like, like my son, AJ and Abram, they don't possess everything about me. They possess my DNA. There's a lot of things that are true about them that are true about me, but they're not exactly me. Whereas we see that Jesus is that type of son. He's, he's the exact imprint of his father. He's a better son. He's a better messenger than the angels. He brings a better message. And he certainly has a better name than has ever been bestowed to the angels. Okay, so when we talk about the term better, we're saying that it's better, but it doesn't make the other bad. And I think that's really important that we don't mistakenly understand what we mean by better doesn't make the other bad, just means that Jesus brings a greater understanding or a greater experience than what was previously had, okay? Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't want us to mistakenly think that we're saying it at, at any point in all this discussion in Hebrews that anything that Jesus is better than makes them bad, okay? Nothing bad about the things that Jesus is better than, all right? The author addresses Jesus in relationship to angels, we had some discussion about this in our, in our groups this morning, right? The author says that Jesus is better than angels, and I think he does that for several reasons, okay? One, because we want to understand angels as messengers of God. We see that a lot of times in Scripture, angels bringing direct special revelation to mankind. Jesus does that as well, but certainly does that on a greater scale, on a better scale, um, 
He, he builds off of the messages that angels have brought previously. Okay. Um, I, I think the author wants to address angels right off the bat for a couple different reasons. One, because I think some people had mistakenly elevated angels to the point of worship. We see this in Colossians 2.18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. All right, so there was some false teaching that was circulating at this time, and maybe it had crept over to, to where these Hebrews were living um, we said they're possibly living in Italy, in Rome. And so maybe the false teaching about worshiping angels had circulated that way. We also know from our understanding in the book of Revelation that there was a tendency potentially at times when in the presence of angels to give worship to them. Because we see John do that on a couple of occasions in Revelation, right? Where the angel has to correct him and say, don't worship me, worship God. I'm just a creation. I'm just an angel. Okay, so there, there, there's, a, there's a desire by the author to kind of eliminate that aspect. We don't worship angels because they are created beings. But I think there's even maybe a, a further reason for why it's addressed in Hebrews. And that's because in talking about Jesus and his message being better than the Old Testament message, there was an understanding um, and kind of an accepted view by the Jewish people that the angels played a role in the deliverance of the Old Testament message, right? In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation okay so the author is talking about the angels playing some type of role in the deliverance of god's previous revelation okay we don't know exactly what that means because we understand the inspiration of scripture being that the holy spirit came upon men and guided them as they wrote where do angels fit into that i don't know that we're really given the specific details but this isn't the only passage that alludes to angels playing a role in that deliverance in acts chapter 7 Verse 53, we'll start in 51. It says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. All right, so some aspect here of angels playing a role in the deliverance of God's law. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Right? So angels are, are, are viewed as playing a role in the deliverance of God's previous revelation. So if, if the author of Hebrews is trying to say Jesus better, his message better, he also wants to show that he is a better messenger than angels because there was a direct tie between the old message and the old messenger. 
that that God had delivered his previous uh, previous revelation in some way through angels. And so the author says, hey, I've got a better message for you that I need to, you to understand that comes from Jesus. And Jesus is better than the angels who previously delivered God's message. All right. So back in Hebrews chapter one now. Kind of setting the stage. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. All right? In our notes, number one, we need to listen to Jesus because he speaks a better message. We need to listen to Jesus because he speaks a better message. For our kids, Jesus speaks a better message. So we see that, that God has been faithful to speak. He has been faithful to reveal. He's done that through the prophets in the Old Testament. But in these last days, the author says, God has chosen to speak directly to us in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, the one who he created the world through. So underneath that, number one, God has been faithful to speak in times past. He's been faithful to speak in times past. He is in, he's been intervening in history long before the incarnation. So it's not that when Jesus shows up, it's the first time we've heard from God, right? God's been very faithful throughout uh, his creation to reveal himself and to, to reveal to man who he is. He spoke through visions. He spoke through dreams. He spoke through angels. He spoke through prophets. He, threw, he spoke through specific events. A lot of different ways that God spoke to man through the Old Testament. But there's a better way that he chooses to speak now, right? A greater revelation that comes now through Jesus Christ. And it's very similar to the formatting in John chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to John chapter 1, because I want to see, I want you to see the similar structure and language that's used here. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. <coughs> there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from, who, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. You can see some parallel themes there, right? That, that Jesus is attributed to being there in the beginning. Right? And he's the creator of the world. We see that in the book of Hebrews. We see him coming with the purpose of bringing redemption. We see in Hebrews chapter 1 the idea of purification of sins is attributed to Jesus. Right, And then we see Jesus being the visual representation of who God is to mankind. Here in John chapter 1, that, that Jesus comes and reveals to us more fully who God is. 
We certainly see that in Hebrews chapter 1 as well. Another passage that kind of gives us the same idea is Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. While we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, he's certainly educated by the right types of people, right? He has received good theology, and he is now passing that theology on based on how he has been taught. He is teaching the same things. This passage presents Jesus as the fulfillment of prior revelation. In the context of God's entire redemptive plan, Jesus is that climactic conclusion that we talked about. Number two, God continues to faithfully speak today. So he's been faithful in the past. He continues to faithfully speak today through Jesus Christ, which affirms the authenticity and the authority of the Old Testament. Right? We're not, we're not diminishing it. We're simply saying that the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. Old Testament full of promises, New Testament full of the fulfillment of those promises. That progressive revelation reaches its climax. From general revelation to more specific special revelation to that climactic final revelation about who God is and what's in store with his plan. All right, so we need to listen to Jesus because he speaks a better message. We certainly listened to the Old Testament prophets and the people who were receiving this message placed great value upon the prophetic messages that they had received in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews says, you've done a great job of valuing those previous messages. Now all the more we must put value on Jesus who brings a much better message. All right, so listen well to the things of Jesus because he speaks a better message. Number two, worship Jesus because he is a better messenger. We need to worship Jesus because he is a better messenger. It says in verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author of Hebrews begins to build a case for why Jesus is better than angels. He's better than prophets because he has a better message. He's a better messenger than the angels for a lot of reasons that are listed here in the remainder of chapter one. Number one, we see he is the heir of all things. He has been appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. These two things are kind of tied together. So number one, he's the heir of all things. Number two, he is the agent of creation. He's the agent of creation. Part of the reason that he's the heir of all things is because he owns all things, right? God uses his son to create the world. So he's the agent of creation that God the Father uses. Therefore, Jesus owns everything that's been created. He has creator rights over all things. Right? And so he's the heir of all things because he is the agent of creation that God uses to create the world. Which allows God 
allows Jesus to have the authority to say the purpose of his creation. And we see the purpose of creation, why God created, both in that passage that we just read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Our football coach at Trinity uses this passage a lot in talking with our football players. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Previously in that verse, all things were created by him, right? And so our head coach is always telling our athletes, God created you, you were created by God, and you were specifically created for him, right? So, so your entire life, your entire purpose in life is directly tied to what Jesus says about it, right? So Jesus gets to define your purpose. He gets to define your existence. And his definition for why you exist is you exist for him. Right? You exist to live for him, to worship him, to serve him. And so what we try to emphasize to our guys at Trinity is that playing football, if it doesn't fit into um, some form or fashion bringing glory and honor to God, then it's a complete waste of time because we have been created by him and for him. And so we're, we're to find everything in life as an opportunity to worship him and to serve him. Every aspect of our life has to fit under that category that we were created by him and for him. He's the agent of creation. He gets to define the purpose of our existence. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 says something very similar. It says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. As God's creation, we are made to worship and serve him. We are created by him and for him, okay? So we must listen well to this message of Jesus. He's a better messenger. He's the heir of all things. He's the agent of creation. Number three, he's the exact imprint of the Father. Man, there's a lot of good theology wrapped up in Hebrews chapter one, specifically regarding the Trinity from the aspects of Father and Son and the equality that they share together. He's the exact imprint of the Father. He is equal to the Father, right? In John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Man, when we read through these Old Testament quotations here in Hebrews chapter one, there's a lot of times where God is calling Jesus God. You you essentially have God calling God God is what's happening in, in the rest of Hebrews chapter one. Man, it's a huge testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. Right? We talk about different passages that are great apologetically for showing somebody how do we know Jesus is God. Right? Thomas and, and the interaction that he has with the resurrected Jesus is a great one. Right? Thomas is a big doubter, a big skeptic as to whether or not Jesus is back from the dead. Right? Jesus shows up, has the interaction with Thomas, shows, Thomas's, uh, shows Thomas the, the imprints in his hands, the scars from the nails. And what is Thomas's response? He begins to worship, crying out to Jesus, my God. And Jesus does not defer that worship. This, um, and I think it was John MacArthur that said, this to him is one of the most strongest passages in regards to showing the deity of Christ. Because what you have is God the Father calling God the Son, God, right? So, So we'll get into some of these Old Testament passages in a minute. But God the Father can call God the Son, the Son can call him God because he's the exact imprint of the Father. It's the the idea that... um, 
the wordage comes from the, the imprint that would come from like a seal, that, that it shares the exact nature, the exact imprint of the, the original piece that makes the seal into the wax, right? That there's a distinctness to them. They're separate. They're not exactly the same as far as they are, they are two distinct things, and yet they are equal as one as the imprint. And, and that's, that's where it's hard when talking about the Trinity because I think the, the, the longer you talk, I can't, ima- I can't imagine really trying to do a Matt 28 on the Trinity because I feel like the longer you talk about the Trinity, the more you start to move towards heresy. Because it's like the more my words start coming about, out about the Trinity, the more I step back and say, I don't know if I believe that or not, right? Like, like it's best to let the word tell us what the Trinity is because really anything outside of God's word begins to borderline heresy because it's so hard to reconcile how we can have God the Father, God the Son, yet there be one God, right? But the idea here is that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father, possesses all of the attributes, all of the abilities. Like there's, there's, no, there's no decrease in value about Jesus being the Son. He's the exact imprint, the exact uh, imprint of his Father. He's the perfect expression of the Father's nature in human form. That, that's what makes Jesus unique. It's the sense that it's, it's our ability to understand what God is like in human form, right? Like we get all the Old Testament picture about who God is. He's progressively revealing his character, right? He's a God of grace, a God of justice, a God of mercy, but also a God of anger and wrath and holiness. We see all of this in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we get to see what that looks like in human form, We get to see a God of grace and mercy, but also a God of wrath and anger and holiness too. No difference in the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, right? Like that's one misconception that oftentimes gets thrown around is that, man, I love Jesus in the New Testament. I hate the God of the Old Testament. They're the same, right? The exact imprint of his father. What we see in the New Testament is the human form of what we've come to understand in the Old Testament. Right? That's, what the, that's what the son is. He's the imprint, the exact nature of the father. Perfect expression of the father's nature in human form. He's the exact imprint. Number four, he's the sovereign sustainer. It says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. I didn't say this yet, but I wanted to. Um, radiance of the glory of God. One commentator described us... We reflect God's glory, right? And the picture is kind of like a moon that reflects the, the, the glory of the sun. But the sun, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the sun. He is the light coming from the sun that we ultimately reflect, right? He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Some, uh, some theologians, some incorrect theologians will portray God as, as more of like a watchmaker, that he's created a watch and then kind of left it to function on its own, that, that he's removed himself. So you go buy a watch, it was made by somebody, but the watchmaker doesn't come to your house and keep that thing going, right? That, that's an incorrect understanding of God and his universe because what we find here is that while Jesus has created everything, he also remains very active in sustaining it on a daily basis. He's active in the preservation of his creation. He sustains all things by the power of his word. We were reading through this um, as a family this week several times. We were just kind of going through Hebrews 1 with our kids, and, and I was just highlighting some specific things that I felt like A.J. and Abram could understand. 
And one of the things that we emphasized was the fact that Jesus sustains the world with his word. And we see that in human form as Jesus is kind of going about how powerful his words are, right? Like he can calm storms with his word. He can heal sickness with his word. He can bring people back from the dead with his word. He certainly has all power in his words. And the picture here is that he sustains the entire world with his words. His power to create gives him the power to, pers- to preserve, to control, and to guide his creation according to his will. The implication for how this is even written, that he sustains it, it carries the idea that he, he is able to carry creation to the end goal that he desires. Let me say that again. Jesus creates, and the way this is worded, it implies that he has the ability to take his created creation and bring it to the very end goal that he desires. He, he moves it towards his specific goal. And, and here's the part that, that resonates with us, is that he's our advocate, right? The, the New Testament describes Jesus as our high priest, as our advocate, the one who we'll see is sitting at the right hand of God. And what Romans tells us is what he's doing there. What's he doing there? Well, he's interceding for us. So we have the the creator of the universe who has all power contained in his words, sustaining the entire global plan, and he's moving it towards his end goal. And we know from Romans that his end goal includes good for every one of his children. He's our advocate. So we have that type of authority on our side is ultimately what we see here. He's the sustainer of the universe. And he's our advocate. But number five, he's the ultimate purifier as well. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This idea of him being the ultimate purifier um, it, it, it's a priestly act that we're talking about here. And this kind of sets the stage for what we're going to talk about later in Hebrews. We'll kind of jump ahead real quick just so we can see this in the context of what he's talking about here. But in Hebrews chapter 10, we understand what the purifier of sins did. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And the picture here is that our priest doesn't have to stand up anymore because he is finished with his work when it comes to being a priest. He accomplished what needed to be had. He, he performed the sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice, the sacrifice that all the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to right? He, he, he stops the sacrifice system because he is the better sacrifice. He now sits down at the, at the right hand of his father as our priest, as our advocate, and doesn't have to stand up again and offer any more sacrifices. He is the purifier of sins. What I love about the, the order of the way that the author chose to put this in here is that it shows him to be the, the sustainer of his creation, And then very specifically, it shows him to be powerful over the very dirtiest parts of his creation, 
right? It's not that he just keeps the cosmos where they should be. It's not that he just keeps the planets orbiting as they should be. It's not that he just keeps the earth and the sun at the appropriate distance so that we don't burn up or freeze. It's that he gets into his creation and deals with the dirtiest, most unfixable parts of his creation. I love how the two are connected here. He's the sustainer of all his creation, and the very parts that we have the hardest uh, hardest issues to deal with, he, he shows himself to be the sustainer of that aspect too. Because I'm going to tell you, all of our jobs would be easier if sin wasn't involved in them, right? Like everything that we do during the week would be far easier if there was no sin involved in it, right? Being a parent would be a lot easier if we weren't dealing with sinful kids. It'd be a lot easier if we weren't trying to deal with it ourselves as sinful parents, Right? We had a complete debacle um, over the last week and a half at Trinity, both from the middle school side of things and from the football side of things, right? Because from the, from the middle school side of things, I've had to ask two students to withdraw over the past two weeks because they can't get their act together, right? Like they can't figure out how to treat other people appropriately. And the language that they used in their actions, like they, they were beyond the point of return for us in the context of Trinity, and I had to ask him to leave. Um, from a football side of things, we've got a couple of knuckleheads on our team that continue to ruin our desire to push our team forward towards excellence. They keep messing it up. They keep holding us back. And there's a lot of frustration. There's frustration by teachers. There's frustration about coaches, about just wanting to be done with these people. Like, like we don't want them anymore. And there comes a point in time where for the sake of the environment, and for the sake of the others, sometimes you do have to remove those people. But what I keep coming back to with my teachers and with our coaches is that if God can take Saul, who was killing Christians, and make him into an individual who was making Christians, right, killing Christians to making Christians, man, the purifier of all sins can do anything in any of the people that we're struggling with most. Man, we can pray knowing that some of the most unfixable situations, because what we've seen from these individuals is a heart that just continues to go unchanged Jesus, Jesus has control over that stuff too, right? He, he sustains the universe. He keeps the earth and the sun at the appropriate distance. But man, he becomes man, humbles himself, puts himself into his own creation to fix the dirtiest parts of his creation, the things that are actually resistant towards him, right? Like he tells the sun and the moon and the, and the earth to do what they're supposed to do, and they don't talk back, right? Like they don't resist. They don't fight. They just say, you know what? You told us to stay right here. We'll stay right here. We'll orbit right here. It's the part of his creation that resists him that he says, you know what? I'm going to come in there and I'm going to purify the sins of my creation. He steps in and he takes care of it. He's that type of creator. Stains creation, purifies sins, and then sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Sovereign sustainer, ultimate purifier. He's the sympathetic inter- intercessor because what is happening when he sits down, Romans eight thirty four tells us he is interceding for us. He sits at the right hand of God on our behalf. And then number seven, he is the son of God. He is the son of God. He is appointed as the reigning Lord. Luke chapter one, the announcement of the birth of Jesus dictates to those who were going to be a part of this story that he will be called the Son of God. Verse 32 of Luke 1, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, it's hard for us to look back into the Old Testament and not sometimes see Jesus as a fulfillment of it and put ourselves in their position where they only had some of the revelation. Because this stuff about him being the son of God, man, that wasn't fully understood and fully known in the Old Testament, right? Like they're getting, they're getting ready for it because they've got David in their minds who's supposed to kind of be their, their leader and their great savior, and yet he's sinful. And then you've got Solomon who's coming from David. You've got promises to David that it's his heir that will ultimately reign forever. And so they're kind of anticipating king after king after king. Like when do we get the one who, who works? Who, when do we get the one who, who is not evil, who doesn't sin, who doesn't fall? And it's the, it's the one that comes in the form of Christ, Jesus, who comes to be the Son of God, who will sit and reign and fulfill the promises that were made to David. Luke 1 says he will be called the Son of God. We're told that this title of Son. So in Philippians chapter 2, we get the name that's above every name, that name of Lord, right? Here in Hebrews, it's the name Son that's being attributed to him that has such great value that makes him better than the angels. It says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What we're gonna see real quick here as we read through some of these Old Testament uh, quotes is that he has a better name, he has better worth, he has a better role, he has a better rank, he has a better function. Now angels are sometimes called sons of God in the Old Testament, but they are never called that individually, right? Like in Job, he talks about the sons of God gathering before the throne, and that's where we have the interaction with Satan and God about Job. So at times in the Old Testament, angels are called sons of God, but never individually and never in the same way. We also see um, Jesus being referenced as the firstborn here. It's important that we note that the, the idea of firstborn is an idea of preeminence and not necessarily that he comes into being or that he is on the same level as something else as though he's the firstborn and there's a secondborn that's equal to him, right? It's the idea of preeminence. And it really doesn't have always necessarily mean firstborn in the way that we use it because Solomon in Psalm eighty nine twenty seven is called the firstborn of David. And yet when you read 1 Chronicles 3, you know that he's not David's first son, right? Romans eight twenty nine. Is another where, place where the idea of firstborn is used. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right? The idea of Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection, but that doesn't make us equal to him. So when we see firstborn in Hebrews chapter one, it's not that Jesus begins to exist, nor does it mean that there are more to come after him. It's the idea of his preeminence as God's son. Now, what we're going to see here as we, as we kind of wrap up and close, these quotations from the Old Testament, man, it's super helpful because what we have is divine commentary, right? Like this is, this is a divinely inspired author of scripture telling us how to understand other parts of scripture. It's divine commentary, right? It's, it's, it's the New Testament telling us how to understand the Old Testament because we may not understand it otherwise had we not been told to understand it this way. Right? These passages that we read about, most of them had direct implications at the time. Some of these are talking specifically about David and about Solomon, 
but then they talk even greater about Jesus when the author applies it back to Jesus. So there was what we call direct fulfillment, that some of these promises were made, and they were talking about David. They were talking about Solomon. But those two guys don't see the the full fulfillment of it. It's Jesus who really these passages end up being uh, referencing to. All right, so the first one, it says, uh, for to which the angels of God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. We jump back into the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And we've said through the book of Revelation, this, this psalm is very messianic in the things that it's saying. Messianic meaning that it points to the Messiah. I will tell of the decree, verse 7 says, The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here we see the connection between you are my son and you are the heir of all things. Right, like These things have been issued to Christ as the Son of God. The immediate application was to David, but the greater fulfillment comes really at the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That's really when he begins to take on that title of Son of God. So when we think of Jesus, we think Son of God all the time kind of thing, but it really becomes uh, something that's declared and realized when it comes to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. We see this in Acts 13, 33. So it's, it's probably correct to say that Jesus has always been the Son of God. I think I even read one commentator that said that's, that's not true, that he doesn't really become the Son of God until the ascension, the resurrection and the ascension because it's a title that's being given to him. So it's not that he becomes anything more than what he used to be in the same way that Jesus was not always human, right? Not always human. He became human at a set point in history. Um, he's always been in a relationship to God in the same way, but that, that aspect of son of God really gets applied with the resurrection and the ascension. It says in Acts chapter 13, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Okay, so here, Peter is applying, or they're, they're applying what has happened in the Old Testament to right now, to this resurrection aspect, to the ascension of Jesus, that, that he is the Son of God, that God is declaring him as such through the resurrection and the ascension. We see this also in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. We'll start in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. When was he declared or how was he declared to be the son of God? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Man, there's certainly something very important that happens with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. He is declared for all humankind that that progressive revelation, man, there's a declaration, a, a, a declaring of Jesus as the Son of God through his act of resurrection and ascension. 
All right, so we see that first quote in Psalm chapter 2. We jump back to Hebrews now, and we'll run through these really quickly. I told you we're never going to be able to cover extensively everything in the chapter, which leaves room for you to personally study some of these things on your own after the fact or even before the fact. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son, comes from 2 Samuel chapter uh, 7, verse 14. Talks about Solomon there. But Matthew chapter 12, verse 42 tells us that Jesus is better than Solomon, right? It says that the, that the um, queen of Sheba will rise and will talk about the fact that, that, that one greater than Solomon, who she came to observe, one greater than Solomon being Jesus has come upon the scene and people have rejected his glory. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, this is a difficult one to tie to because we, it's hard maybe to find the direct quote that this comes from. It's probably either from Deuteronomy 32, 43 or Psalm 97, 7. Did anybody look this up on your own and kind of wrestle through this and what's maybe the difficulty with nailing it down specifically that this is where it comes from? What does the ESV say? Do you remember? Does anybody remember why it's difficult to tie it, at least in the ESV? Right, so, so the ESV translation is based on the Hebrew Old Testament, right? And so the translation there is going to use the word gods. It's not going to use the word angels, right? But the Septuagint translates the Hebrew into the word angels. Now, remember, we said that the author of Hebrews is using the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, right? So when we look into ours and we see the cross-reference that says, oh, this comes from Psalm 97 or Deuteronomy 32, we go back there and we read it and we're like, I don't see anything about angels in these passages at all. All I see is stuff about gods worshiping him right? Well, the Septuagint translates the word gods to angels. So it's very likely that he is referencing one of those two passages because the Old Testament that he's reading, the Bible that he's reading would have said angels, okay? The fourth one comes from Psalm 104.4. The idea of the angels being winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Man, what that communicates to us is that Jesus, the creator, the sustainer, and he also creates and sustains angels, Right, like they fall under his creative order because they are very similar to how he uses the winds and the flames of fire. They are grouped with that order of creation. The fifth one comes from Psalm chapter 45, verses 6 and 7. Talking about um, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Man, as I was reading that and, and just thinking about Jesus sitting on the throne, I can't help but think back to our study in Revelation and what is surrounding his throne. Man, it's the angels who are worshiping him, right? If there's any doubt as to who is better, angels or Jesus, we just look around the throne and see who's sitting on the throne and who's not, right? It's the angels who are not sitting there who are worshiping the one who has been enthroned, right? So angels are great, but they're not as great as Jesus. Angels are powerful, but they're not as great as Jesus. Angels have a purpose, but their purpose isn't as great as Jesus's purpose. The sixth one comes from Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Read that to you from Psalms, just so we can see the, the direct quotation there. Psalm 102, verse 25. 
Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. You uh, shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. The idea that Jesus is eternal. He does not change. And then the last one comes from Psalm 110.1. And it carries the idea of Jesus having authority over his enemies. Then the passage wraps up talking about the angels having a function. They serve as ministering spirits sent out for the, to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And that's, again, it's not to diminish the purpose of angels, right? Like you guys discussed this morning in your groups, what do angels do? What, what's their role within creation? Well, they too are created by God and for God, right? They have a purpose of worship as well. And God uses them as agents to minister and serve us, probably in ways that we'll never fully understand until we get there. And I heard one group say that we probably don't know as much about angels as we could potentially so that we're not tempted to worship them, right? Man, you hear some crazy stories about how God uses angels in ways to protect his people. I was reading through one commentary that just had story after story after story from the mission field. The one that stood out to me most is one uh, of a missionary that, that I've studied before, John Patton. When he arrives at the new Hebrides, Mount, or Hebrides Islands, he's surrounded by cannibals, and he's trying to minister to people who, who want to kill him. And one night, he and his family are inside their hut, and they are, they are being surrounded by the cannibals outside. And for reasons he doesn't understand, they don't come in and take them. And they just leave. And so John Patton and his family continue to minister. They continue to share the gospel. And eventually one of the chieftains of that group gets saved. And the two of them are sitting around having a conversation about the night that they were surrounded by his people. And the chieftain says, yeah, we couldn't attack because, because your house was surrounded by, 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 by soldiers of light. Like they were, they were fully armed and there were hundreds of them. And we were scared to death to go approach your house. Man, I read that kind of stuff and I'm like, Man, that sounds like what angels would be doing by God. Right, like that sounds like how they would be used by God to offer protection for his people in situations where, man, it doesn't make sense for somebody to escape that type of scenario. And God uses them, because we see him use the angels that way in the Old Testament, right? We see, we see him thwart the, uh, the, the plans of the enemies with his angels in the same way in the Old Testament. They certainly have a great purpose, but they certainly don't deserve our worship. They are certainly messengers of God, but they don't bring the type of message that Jesus brings. So the whole aspect of Hebrews chapter one is for us to see that Jesus's message is better and he is a better messenger, which means we, we absolutely have to listen to him and we absolutely have every reason to worship him, which gives us two points of application in closing. Number one, when times are tough, trust the one who, gui- who is guiding things for good purposes. I left out the word is there. When times are tough, Trust the one who is guiding things for good purposes. I told you, there's going to be theological aspects and practical aspects. A lot of theology in Hebrews chapter 1 about who Jesus is. A lot of Old Testament quotations, messianic quotations about who Jesus is and the role that he plays as God's son. What does that mean for us? Well, if he's the sustainer of the universe, it certainly means that I should trust him when things are tough in my life. Because again, we said to apostatize, to walk away from the faith, it's either gonna be due to trials or temptations. Either things get tough and we wanna abandon the faith or things get very tempting to look towards other things and to walk away. 
When times are tough, trust the one who is guiding things for good purposes. He sustains the universe. He is pushing it towards his goal. His goal includes good for his children. Why would we walk away from this Jesus? Why would we walk away from the better message, from the better messenger when things get tough? Because he's moving things for good purposes for us. And then number two, when times are tempting, trust the one who is working to fix you. Man, he's the purifier of sins, right? He is the one who is not just forgiving us. It's not that he just excuses it. He purifies us. Philippians says he starts a good work. He finishes the good work. Man, what's, what's his goal for you to be conformed to the image of his son? Is that going to happen before Jesus comes back? No, not completely. But he is certainly pushing us through sanctification to be more holy on a daily basis. So when we are tempted to sin, man, we should be reminded that, man, what's Jesus doing today? He's keeping the sun where it's supposed to be. He's keeping the earth where it's supposed to be. But you know what else he's doing? He is working on the dirty parts of his creation and making them holy. We need to see ourselves as part of that, as part of that renovation, right? That he has come to make us, make us holy, to destroy the works of the devil. So when times are tempting, trust the one who is working to fix you because he has the power to fix the unfixable. Man, there's times where I've had to step back this week and just say, you know what, I can't fix this. I can't make this kid do what he's supposed to do. I can't make this kid make the right choices. I can't make this kid love other people. But Jesus can, right? Jesus can make people do things that their nature is contrary to. And I, and I told some of our coaches t- uh, yesterday, I said, man, we just got to pray that God, God, God makes our, our athletes believe the things that we're telling them. Because we're not saying it wrong. We're not saying it not enough, right? There, there's an issue where we can't fix this but we serve one who fixes the unfixable. When times are tempting, trust the one who is working to fix you. Family worship questions. Read Hebrews chapter two this week as a family. Work through that together. Talk about the clear things. Talk about some of the questions that you have. Hopefully we answer those next Sunday. If not, then we've hopefully given you some direction on how to get those answered in your own personal studies. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the the picture that we get of Jesus in Hebrews chapter one. God, we are so thankful that while you spoke in times past in a variety of ways in the Old Testament, we are thankful that, that you completed what was lacking in that revelation. That you had shared a lot of things about who you are, but there was still a, a lack of full understanding about who you are and what you plan to do. God, we thank you that those things have been answered through Jesus. We thank you that Christ came as the exact imprint of you so we can see you in human form and better understand who you are. God, we thank you that Jesus brings a better message, a fulfilling, a complete message. We thank you that Jesus is a better messenger that that demands our worship. God, we thank you that, that Jesus today is sustaining this universe, that Jesus today is already in control of the things that we're gonna face this week. God, I know we all have people that we know who are going through divorce, who are going through sickness, who are dealing with death, We know people who are struggling in their jobs, struggling with their finances. God, help us to remember and to trust you in tough times that you sustain all things, that you are pushing things to an end goal that has good intent for your children. God, as we we leave today and we are faced with temptation this week, maybe temptation to mishandle our finances, maybe temptation to mishandle our relationships. God, I pray that we would remember and trust in you that you can fix the desires that still remain in us. 
God, help us to remember that you start a good work, you finish the good work. That you are the high priest that has offered the sacrifice that we desperately needed. That you cleanse us from our sins. That you, you put the Holy Spirit inside of us so that we can walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. God, we know we'll never be perfect until you come back. But God, help us not to, to allow that to, to keep us from pursuing you with everything that we have. God, give us the will and the desire this week to not grow weary in trials, to not grow hard because of temptation to sin. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.